Uh, welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. I'm Matt Levine. I'm Dwight Lewis. Uh, today, we're talking about a more specific issue than we have in our previous episodes. Uh, that said, it's an issue that we believe connects up with racism and ableism, not only in the discipline of philosophy, but also racism and ableism in the broader culture. So in particular, we want to talk about the news that came out several weeks ago about a seven-year, $2.78 million grant that was awarded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Resources Council of Canada for a project entitled Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy. Now, the goals of this project sound great. The goals are to change the standards of practice in philosophy, to enable the discipline to become inclusive and diverse, by retrieving philosophical works of women and individuals from other marginalized groups across historical periods from 1400 through 1940 and sustaining the presence of these figures and their works in the history of philosophy. But as you all immediately notice, there are some serious problems here. In particular, the project is run almost exclusively by non-disabled white women with a few white men thrown in and also seems to be primarily interested in uncovering the works of non-disabled white women. And there was a good deal of discussion about this at the Daily News, but also around the philosophy internet world. So we wanted to have a dedicated discussion about it with some folks who bring some serious expertise and experience on the matter. Uh, and that's why, that's why y'all are here. Um, so if you would please, uh, could you just Introduce yourselves in whatever scene, in whatever way seems most appropriate given the topic. I know you all have such wonderful expertise and experience. I didn't want to uh, pick out things to focus on uh, uh, myself, um, but also if you think there's anything that needs to be added to the characterization of the topic, uh, that would be great as well, please. Um, and I, I love alphabetical order, uh, so let's let's start with Charles, please. Sure, no problem. Okay, so Charles Mills, um, Distinguished Professor, Graduate Center, City University of New York. Um, I did my PhD in Canada, actually, way back when, in the 1970s, 1980s, at University of Toronto. And um, I came to Canada from Jamaica, and I had a very naive conception of philosophy. In particular, I did not realize how white it was. And if you think philosophy is white now in the US, believe me, you have not seen real whiteness so <laughs> go up to Canada. So, you know, this was like a real shock to me. And in fact, the very first meeting I attended of the Canadian Philosophical Association way back in the 1980s, I do believe that of all the hundreds of people there, both faculty and, and students, I was the only person of color in the entire meeting. So that, you know, gives you a sense of things. So I came to the US because I couldn't find a job in Canada. But obviously, you know, since I did my PhD up there, I have a certain sort of um, lingering attachment to it. And I was really concerned, you know, when I saw this, normally I don't get involved in these, you know, online um, threads, but I thought to myself, considering how long ago I did my PhD there, I got in 85, this is 2020, surely there should be a bit more self-consciousness in philosophy now about these issues, especially considering that the announcement came out in the middle of the global protests around race and racism sparked by the George Floyd killing. Thank you very much, Charles. Uh, Linda. 
Um, I'm Linda Martine Alcoff, and I teach at the City University of New York. Charles and I are colleagues at the Center, but I'm also at Hunter College. I, I, uh, I'm a, I've been working on race and feminism since my f first publications in the 1980s when I was a graduate student. Um, and in those days, we had to, as Charles said, do it on our own. <laughs> I had to do feminist philosophy outside of the philosophy department, and I had to, to you know, in, in my graduate program, and those of us interested in Latin American philosophy created our own kind of reading group. We would share documents and information and ideas and interpretations just, you know, amongst ourselves because there was no place inside the profession in which this field was represented at conferences or uh, in journals to speak of, or certainly not in the requirements. Um, I'm from Panama, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Florida. <laughs> like Dwight is, I'm in <laughs> I love Florida. I went to Florida State and like Charles, I, I had a kind of, you know, a different experience in the, initially because in my department at Florida State, I studied uh, the philosophy of Che Guevara and Reggie Debray. <laughs> we were reading uh, about, because it was a different time too, but I had a, a professor from Argentina and he had done a lot of work on anti-colonial philosophical debates. So I thought philosophy was the place to be to discuss this, the teaching. <laughs> How to make global, you know, anti-imperialist uh, revolution? Because there was a lot, you know, there is a lot of writing around the world. And and then of course I went to graduate school and discovered otherwise. Right. But I've been president of the American Philosophical Association, like Charles. So I've done both inside institutional work and also outside institutional work to try to change the profession. Together with Shelley and Charles for the last, uh, I don't know, it's been like 35 years or so. Too long. <laughs> hey, long, without y'all coming forward, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Um, I'm going to be serious. This wouldn't have been somewhere I got pulled towards. Um, it's work that you guys have done um, that really pulled me into this. Um, so I, I appreciate you. You know, and Linda, the I'm first time I met you, I was like, in Switzerland, <laughs> uh, we were at some race and racism conference, and I was like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this, seriously. Um, yeah, we need you. We need the, ra it. the racial contract and blackness visible uh, changed my life, Charles. Oh my God. Uh, yes, uh, thank what, you. What a burden. <laughs> I'm responsible for this guy, whatever happens from now on. So uh, thank you both. Uh, uh, Shelley, would you introduce yourself, please? Um, I'm Shelley Tremaine, and I'm currently unemployed. Uh, I'm a disabled Canadian feminist philosopher of disability, and I'm also uh, a coordinator at um, Biopolitical Philosophy, the philosophy blog that focuses on issues of exclusion and marginalization in philosophy and with a special um, attention to uh, issues of exclusion and marginalization for disabled philosophers and critical work, philosophical work on disability. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what to say, except that um, this uh, project and the large grant that was awarded to it, for me, crystallize. And this goes back to a lot of what Charles was talking about. This grant, for me, crystallizes the problems with um, many of the problems with Canadian philosophy, in particular, um, the uh, you know, the, the demographics of uh, Canadian philosophy have not changed in, uh, I would say, 15 years for anyone except non-disabled white women. Um, and um, I, I'm really the only disabled philosopher of disability in Canada um, at present. And there's never been a disabled philosopher of disability employed full-time in the Canadian philosophy department. There is, as far as I know, only one black philosopher employed full-time in Canada at present, and that's Chucky Jeffers. So the situation here is very, it's, it's very upsetting, and I don't see uh, any I don't see anything happening uh, to change that. And I don't see, more importantly, I don't see any institutional mechanisms that would promote or allow for that sort of change or enable it. Um, certainly not within the Canadian Philosophical Association, which has an equity com committee, but um, that the equity committee, I mean, they, you know, publish a report maybe every few years. And, you know, those reports are very uneven in terms of their quality. The last report that was put out was um, a good practices report. And although it was um, good in, uh, with respect to non-disabled white women um, and gender equity, binary gender equity, it was, it was very poor um, with respect to the quality was very, not very good with respect to disability in particular. Um, and I actually contacted the, the um, organizer, the head of the um, equity committee at the time and, you know, asked her, you know, pointed out to her problems with the way disability was represented in the document and you know um the they said to me at the time you know i'm i'm not a specialist in this area i'm a philosopher of science and i thought well so what are you doing you know why are you present you know putting together a report for uh, that could be quite you know could be quite beneficial um and could be quite important for the discipline uh, and the profession in canada and it's, you know, it's not even something that you really are committed to or really know a lot about. So um, the, the, the Canadian Philosophical Association does not have any kinds of mechanisms that would bring about change in, um, in philosophy in Canada. And I don't see any mechanisms within, you know, departments themselves um, it, that would bring about any kind of institutional change. I mean, there, there's nothing like diversity institutes in Canada. There are no, there's one conference a year um, for the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. You got that a bit wrong, um, Matt, when you, when you said it at the outset. But, You're um, non-Canadian, you. Yes. <laughs> so there's there, there's one there's one conference um a, a CPA an annual conference once a year and the equity committee has a panel on it but 
other than that, there's nothing else. Um, or the and the CSWIP, um, the Canadian um, Canadian Society for Women in Philosophy has a conference, an annual conference in October of every year. But you know that's usually attended by almost exclusively non-disabled white women because that's almost exclusively, you know, who makes up uh, who comprise it, uh, the comprises the the faculty, full-time faculty in this country is non-disabled mm -hmm. white people. Yeah, yeah. So before we move on, I do want to thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you for organizing this. Um, we, we, we're excited to do this. We were, as soon as we read on the Daily News, we were, um, yeah, yeah, ecstatic to do this. Um, so moving on, I actually want to step in um, because I believe that change can happen. Um, um, and not just, um, not just, uh, amongst ourselves, but I think we can beat the institution. Um, but I want to say that it starts at grassroots, right? Um, we, we, uh, and I, I'm going to talk too much, but you know, we talk about civil rights, um, and yet we're still where we're at. Um, and I think it's because partly the community has to police itself um, at the grassroots level. Um, your neighbors have to say something's wrong. Um, your friends have to say something's wrong. Your family has to say something's wrong. And philosophy is our family, and so this is meant to call that out, right? Um, the 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 goal of this is to call is to be like, no, family members have been wrong or have been wronged, um, and so how then do we move forward from that? Uh, so, Charles, you brought up in your in in uh, in your introduction um, the this grant um, coming out on in the wake of George Floyd. Um, so I guess the question I have that I have to ask you is, and anyone can jump in on this too, is um, what does this tell us about how people are tuned to blackness and philosophy, right? Um, uh, what does this, I guess, uh, how does this, what does this, what information does this tell us in relationship to how people are tuned to blackness? In the well, I think it really brings home, and this is a very frustrating thing to be brought home, the extent to which, at least in certain circles, the efforts of many people over decades seem to have made no difference. Because uh, my main research area for the past quarter century or so has been issues of race and Africana philosophy and so forth. I've published a lot in this area, I've given a lot of talks to a lot of other people, um, Black American philosophers, there are some white progressive philosophers work on race, you know, Latins, Asian Americans, uh, a handful of um, native, native peoples. So these issues have been sort of discussed for a long period of time. And part of this startling thing for me about seeing the lineup was that I would think that in 2020, there'd be a sort of self-consciousness. You would automatically say, hold on a second, this can't go forward, it's all white people. Um, where are the people of color? And in, I think both at the level of you know, the, the PIs, investigators themselves, and the evaluators, the people are sort of looking at different proposals and deciding what to fund. There would have, should have been an immediate response, hold on, this is crazy. And the very fact that that did not happen is an indication of the extent to which philosophy is just decades, decades behind the times in terms of the discussions that have been taking place in other disciplines. So it shows a certain 
obduracy, a certain um, imperviousness that you know you can do all this stuff, you can write all this, publish all this stuff for a subset of people who have differential power in the profession. None of this has mattered. They just have sort of you know been going on regardless. And the scary thing is, we'll continue to do so. Yeah, yeah, and that is the scary thing that we have that we are continuing to do so. We are, we are. Um, Linda, Linda, I'm going to ask you. Um, so now that we are again, I'm going to bring wake up again because I think uh, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful analogy. Um, being in the wake of this, not only George Floyd, but then being in the wake of the fact that people are not attuned to blackness. Um, how do we, how do we avoid these type of situations? I know it's a big question. How do we attune people to blackness? Um, and what should happen in response to this, to this, to the, to this case? Um, I know I'm asking a tough question. No, it's, it's the question we have to ask. Um, what, what surprised me is this project apparently was focused on gender and yet was not done in an intersectional way. And like Charles said, I mean, we've been doing work on intersectionalism for decades now. And so you can't think about making progress in relationship to gender by simply focusing on European philosophers or European women anymore. I mean, really this shouldn't, this shouldn't have happened. So, but I think um, we have a gap between the decision makers and the people doing the scholarship and you know, the, you know there is a there is better diversity of scholarship in the journals and in books today that's available, and we have a, a generation gap. And so the 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 older generation who are in the position to decide who gets money, yeah, yeah. these really you know ambitious projects and get um, and have the the gravitas the the CVs the experience to get to actually get the money uh, are, are not a diverse crowd and in Canada worse than ever. So I think the, um, and I think that, that it's true that feminist philosophy has made a lot of progress in terms of representation on boards as well as numbers of publication, as well as hiring um, even the top graded I don't believe in that stuff, but you know, the top ranked philosophy departments now, because it used to be that you wouldn't find a feminist philosopher in the top ranked philosophy departments. Yeah. Two, sometimes even two. Yeah. So <laughs> but it is clearly insufficient because yeah. it is feminist philosophers doing, um, uh, you know, certain, a certain range of feminist work, of feminist questions, and not intersectional questions of a variety of sorts. And so, although we have made progress, and I think that supports your hopefulness, Dwight, um, it, has it has been restricted. And in some ways, I think, the, I, just the last point I make, I think that there's, there's a reason for that, because I think it's easier to include European women, non-disabled white women. 
I think it's less challenging to philosophical methodology. I think what's really challenging to philosophical methodology and historiography is to figure out how to think about Africana philosophy back in time mm -hmm. and Latin American philosophy and, and other and other arenas. I think that's more challenging to the, the, the business as usual of the ways in which we define what counts as a philosophical work, yeah. the way we define what counts as philosophical methodology. So I think it's not an accident that, that the inclusion of European women, like the interlocutors with Descartes and, and, and others and so forth, have been able to get some play. Yeah, yeah. Well, not as much as they deserve, but they've been able to get some play. But I think it's going to be a, a bigger lift to get the non-Europeans, to get other, you know, other kinds of intersectional issues, disability among them, in, into um, the, the canon of required reading. It needs to be required reading to get your PhD. You should not be able to get a PhD in 2020 in philosophy without having done any Africana philosophy and this, you know, this other kind of philosophy, but you can. So that's the next hurdle. And, and I, I think we, we work both inside and outside institutions. You cannot rely simply on working inside institutions. There has to be pressure from the street. That's what we learn from the movement. And if I could just pick up very briefly on what Dwight, Dwight's metaphor earlier. If you think of this metaphor of a family, you know, that is a metaphor that does really sort of you know, shape perception and cognition. It's whom you're hanging out with, whom you're socially interacting with, whom you're reading. And there's a white family, and you know, the fact has to be faced. White women are subordinated, historically deprived of the vote, right to own property, to run for office, all that stuff. Nonetheless, they're part of the white family, the larger white family, in a way that people of color are not. So the people are subordinating the household. Then there are those folks who are not in the household altogether. They're not even in the same neighborhood. So you know the issues of you know race, issues of imperialism, and the global south, and so forth. These are in a sense you know more challenging, as Linda says. <clears throat> Sorry, precisely because these are the populations that are more alien. So that you know white women you know have been subordinated by white men. But there's a sense in which there's a family connection there that you do not find for the racial outsider. And I think this really does shape in a pretty deep way. In a period of protest against restrictions of access, who finds access more easy? Who's sort of able to push their way in more readily? Um, Africana philosophers, Latin philosophers, native philosophers, as against white women who, as I say, are historically, because the, the household is constructed around them. They should not, of course, be, restric be restricted to the household. That's part of the whole point of the feminist challenge, the way the household and public and private sphere are defined. Nonetheless, they're part of the family, the larger white family, a way that people of color are definitely not. Yeah, yeah. No, so I want to actually connect uh, Charles and Linda here, too, because we talk about this easy access um, making access easy, and then this connection to Descartes. Because I work on someone like Anton Wilhelm Amo, um, and the only reason why people are knocking on my door to hear about Amo 
is because they can easily connect him to someone like Descartes or easily connect him to someone like Leibniz. Um, but if he was uh, an, Afri an Africana uh, philosopher that was not connectable to the Western canon so easy, no one would be knocking on my door. No one would care. No one would care. And so that leap that you were talking about, Linda, is, I think that's just, a, that, that is the case. That leap is so, yeah, it's so wide. That gap is so wide um, that it's scary. I mean, uh, I would love, yeah, it's, it's also scary. There's I mean, a of Descartes going on, you know, of Descartes got his ideas from the Jesuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, also, and, and I think philosophers respond in the way people respond to the coming down of the monuments. You can't take our monuments. <laughs> yeah, I actually agree. I really agree. I really agree. But we're going to come back to some of the stuff that Linda brought up with the senior and junior gap um, um, and um, uh, how we can rethink, um, especially for junior scholars, how we can rethink um, getting tenure also. Um, because some of us, uh, you know, I'm going to talk way too much, um, but I partly worked on someone like Anton Wilhelm Mo, um, because my advisor, who was a, who, uh, you know, he actually is very great, Roger Arief, um, he, um, he was like, you know, you, he's like, if you do early modern, we know that you're going to get a job. You just need to figure out a way to do early modern the way that you do it, right? Um, and so, and so, of course, I started working on Anton Wilhelm Amo and race. Um, but it was smart because I really don't know if I would have a job right now if I didn't. And I don't know if I would have gotten, you know, that I've gotten multiple fellowships over and over is because I'm working on something that the white family members can relate to, right? Um, to be serious. Um, yeah, so this is interesting. Um, uh, one of the things we like to do here is include with each episode um, a reading list. Um, and, and, and you all, you all mentioned um, uh, work you've done here in the past on these issues. Um, uh, especially one of the things that really comes to mind here is you've all done work on the, the mechanisms of reproduction of uh, global white supremacy and the disability apparatus. Um, so I'm wondering here, um, uh, uh, would you be willing to all reference a work or two of your own in the past where you feel like you've actually done some work that if people were paying attention to these things would have preempted uh, decisions like this? Well, I just happened to have... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. She had yes. yes. I, I didn't know you were going to ask this question. Um, <laughs> One of those coincidences, we all understand. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can happen to have a book near at hand also. Oh, I've, got, I've got blackness visible right here for you, Charles. Oh my God, people <laughs> are doing it for me. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, Everybody okay. happens to have their, their work with them. Wonderful. I, I, I don't have my work, but... <laughs> Nice. Good. So your bell hooks. It's your your. <laughs> so people can access this this collection now, which is you know like all these big hardback collections, very expensive. But they can actually access it free on really? the website, and it has uh, you know thirty essays on the history of philosophy on all er philosophical areas. So that's one, just one. There's so much, but that's one resource. 
And my first book, still my most popular book, The Racial Contract, um, if I <laughs> yep. say so myself, I, I mean, it starts off by saying we need to look at white supremacy. And it seemed kind of, you know, crazy and extreme at the time. Now, lo and behold, thanks to our president, who has play, played a positive role in that respect, at least, white supremacy is now a subject you can talk about much more openly than before. I mean, I, I do self-consciously put in the global context, talk about European imperialism and colonialism, and how it has shaped the world we live in. And a manifestation of that is, you know, the fact that the Floyd killing here in the U.S. sparked these demonstrations all over, not merely as a condemnation of U.S. racism, but the racism in their own countries, you know, like in Britain, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Beautiful. Well, um, I, I held up my book, but, um, you know, if anyone's interested in my work, they can go to um, my Phil Papers page, and I have most of my papers there, so they can take a look at, you know, whatever they like there. Um, I think um, I, uh, oh, I guess I could also say that I'm going to be um, guest editing a special issue of uh, critical diversity. Um, Internet, the International Journal of Critical Diversity Studies is South Africa, a new South African uh, journal, interdisciplinary journal. Um, and I'm on uh, the special issue that I'm going to be a guest editing is um, philosophies of disability and the global pandemic. And I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, reading the work that's submitted for that. Thank you. Um, so, so in your responses, uh, Charles, you brought up uh, the the cold-blooded killing of of George Floyd in the streets of Minneapolis, and Shelley, you brought up uh, uh, the case of a global pandemic here. So, uh, a number of commenters uh, during this during this discussion have said things like, you know, why are we worried about what's happening in philosophy departments right now? when there are bigger issues facing people of color, disabled people, oppressed people, et cetera. Um, so, so I'm wondering how, how would y'all connect this discussion about what goes on in the institution of philosophy to COVID-19, to the current political action against white supremacy culture uh, and so on? Certainly it's the case. And you know, we, you know the people are, are right in one sense, sort of get the priorities straight. Um, there's a sort of crucial issue of, you know, will I get my next article published and so on. But there's a really important issue of, you know, what's happening to people in the society at large, not really people of color, but um, disadvantaged white people, you know, you know the, the rent crisis, you know, the economic crisis. This is going to be uh, uh, affecting people across racial lines in a major way. So, you know, the, the justification, nonetheless, under these circumstances, we're talking about philosophy is because we have a distinctive perspective to bring to bear on these issues which might conceivably be of some value. Insofar as you have philosophy as a sort of crucial part of a liberal humanist education, even if as we know even that is under threat with the closing down of philosophy departments at some schools, insofar as you have thousands of philosophy courses being taught each year across the country, maybe tens of thousands. And insofar as philosophy is supposed to give me a sort of big picture view of things and issues of you know, social justice and ethics and how we understand the world and so forth, philosophers can play a role in helping young Americans to get a better sense 
of the problems facing the country and what you know, a, a good way of tackling them would be. So my own area of specialization is political philosophy, so I'll sort of focus on that. Ever since you know, John Rawls's book in 1971, so 50th anniversary coming up next year, the main theme of Anglo-American political philosophy has been social justice, okay? So we have all these courses across the US having been taught for decades on social justice. And here is the really amazing thing about these courses and about this body of literature. Racial justice is virtually completely undiscussed. We are here in what is historically a white settler state, which establishes a white supremacist polity, so that one of the most sort of salient manifestations of injustice is white supremacy. And the very people whose supposed mission it is to clarify things for us on the issue of social justice, the last thing they want to talk about is racial justice. So you have this huge body of literature, Rawls himself, the secondary literature on Rawls, and not just Rawls, but people to the center, to the right of Rawls, the liberal tradition, people in the communitarian tradition, a lot of people in the continental tradition as well, all these different traditions and what binds them a sort of common link is a sort of resolute refusal to talk about the central structure of injustice in the United States, white supremacy. So that now that we're having people demonstrating in the streets and young people you know, taking the lead and you know, all credit to Black Lives Matter and you know, people of you know, Dwight's age, the question we need to ask is, given that political philosophers are supposed to be justice guys where the hell were they when you know, these issues, you know, in their chance to sort of you know, prepare young Americans to deal with the problems of the country, to make it a better United States, where the hell were they entrusted with that valuable task? So these are the kinds of things that philosophers could do. I'm focusing just on this because I say political philosophy is my area. But think of what a difference it would make as the country transitions to a non-white majority. Some people are claiming it's not going to happen because whiteness will be expanded. But for those who think it's transitioning to a non-white majority, think of all the problems and conflicts that are going to be attend this transition. Think of the role of philosophers in preparing, let's say in particular, um, young white Americans you know, for this new world they're going to be living in and to make it as smoother and just a transition as possible don't philosophers, don't political philosophers need to be talking about issues of race and racial justice and corrective justice and the need to admit the historically white supremacist character yeah, of yeah. the United States as a nation? Yeah, 100. Yeah, that was, that was good. Um, so I'm going to say just one thing and then Linda, we're going to let you uh, respond to the same question. Um, yeah, that was beautiful. Um, and partly because, you know, when I was an undergrad, I, um, I went to a PWI's Wheaton College in Chicago. Um, and I had an advisor there, Tom Schwanda, super white dude. Um, but I came to him in, in, in my course. I was like, wow, I haven't, I haven't read one black person while I've been at Wheaton. Like, what's, what's like, something's problematic about this. Um, and he was like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Still didn't add a book at first. He didn't add a book of color at first, but he gave me an extra book. He was like, well, you can read this extra book. Um, and then I went to him at the end of my senior year and I was like, I think I want to do academia, but do people like me even do it? Um, because I hadn't seen any black people in academia. And he was like, yes, and I'm going to help you. Um, and he has been such a 
fighter for me ever since. Um, so much so that, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He even emailed me this week and was like, I know that you're hurting right now um, and I'm hurting for you. Um, and uh, I'm trying to learn ways that I can do this even better in the classroom. And I've looked at his books for the past 10 years after I left school and all of them are filled uh, with, black, with black characters also now. Um, and it's like, these are the type of thing, and what I'm getting at are these are the type of systematic things that white people also have to do, um, is really what I'm, I'm trying to connect with you and say that he's doing something that's actually able to change the, at least some people, white and help black people, um, by engaging and not just engaging at, like a, um, at a surface level, but actually attempting to like change the way that he even does research, right? Um, and I think that's something that I feel like a lot of times is not happening. And that's why I was saying that's in relationship to do people. People are not doing things that are actually changing their research. Um, they're, they're, it's like, I'll dabble. I'll dabble in this, but I'm not actually going to um, do, this, do this actual change. Um, do this actual change. Um, so actually, we're going, we'll move on. We'll move on to another question, Linda. Can I just okay. address this a little bit yes please i think it you know it's hard i mean i'm in new york it's hard for my students to focus on their assignments when you know there's so much going on in the world but i think it's important uh to have both a long-term and a short-term approach you need a short-term approach that has a, an immediate agenda of demands and how you're gonna you know, strategically get to them. But you also have to have a long-term approach. When I was young, I got to meet this activist from El Salvador and the FMLN. And she said the FMLN had an 80-year plan. And that really- Wow, wow. It's like it's multiple generations. Wow. We were like so into immediate gratification. We thought it was gonna happen like in our lifetime. But if you have an 80-year plan, you're thinking beyond your own lifetime, right? You, and so you have to, you have to um, also think about that. And for that, I think, you know, as, as Charles says, um, what we have to do is change the narrative. And philosophy has uh, an important role to play in changing the narrative of who people of color are. The, the narrative is that Europeans invented freedom, individual liberty, rights, um, democracy, right? That's the idea. And so why should we uh, respect the intellectual traditions of other groups? And shouldn't we just see them as, they shouldn't be decision makers, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay for Europeans to be the decision makers because they're the ones at the front. They're the vanguard of the human race in thinking about justice. But you know, what we're finding out now through um, research like by Chike Jeffers and, and at Dalhousie in Canada is that, you know, some of these concepts uh, were not exclusive to Europe. They have different formulations than other places, better formulations. I think the concept of human rights really comes from the Las Casas Sepulveda debates over indigenous rights in, uh, in, the, in the New World. And um, I think there's non-ideal political philosophy traditions throughout Latin America that are not only distinct and original 
from the European tradition, but better in some very important respects. So it's like philosophers have been eating from this very small, you know, <laughs> part yeah, of the yeah. But I think beyond the philosophical resources that we're not taking advantage of, it's the narrative in our cultures that really is critical to maintaining people's racist views and views that, you know, even among liberals, that the ranking, the intellectual ranking is as it should be, is not uh, illegitimate. And, and philosophy has an important role to play in overturning that narrative if we can get on, <laughs> get on, the, get on board and get working. Um, I like, I just want to pick up on that point if I can, because I think that is one, for me, that is one of the most disappointing things about this extending new narratives project is that it's not going to have the kind of narratives that, or I expect that it won't have the kind of narratives that Linda's referring to. It won't have alternative narratives um, to a very Eurocentric, Western-centric, um, uh, you know, scope of, of you know, it, the, of the history of philosophy. Um, I, I just want to say that uh, one of the things that I mentioned in uh, one of my comments on Daily New was that um, I uh, pointed out that there, there didn't seem to be any philosophers of race or philosophers of disability uh, in the roster of um, uh, print, uh, um, PIs. And this concerns me because, you know, and this gets to, to what Linda and Charles have been talking about, because if there's no one who specializes in philosophy of disability or who knows the material quite well, yeah. narratives, aspects of the past that, ha that, that could be discussed to, in the present are not going to be even recognized, you know, as important to be discussed. Yeah. So for instance, um, I, uh, on um, a recent post that I made, I, the post that I made the other day at Biopolitical Philosophy, I mentioned the, import, uh, the central role that Canadian philosophers and philosophy departments have played in uh, you, the history of eugenics in Canada. The head of philosophy at University of Alberta, who uh, who was the head, the, who was the head of the eugenics board in Alberta, and he oversaw 4,800 sterilizations of Whoa. of disabled disabled people, mostly disabled women and Indigenous women. That is a narrative that I would want to be discussed in the new narratives in history in history of philosophy. Yeah, but, yeah. And it's it's particularly interesting that you mentioned indigenous women there at the end, you know, uh, uh, Shelley and I, and actually uh, 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 Charles and Linda, we're all on unceded Haudenosaunee territory right now. Um, and, and lots of lots of the, the, the folks who are PIs for this are, are on unceded Haudenosaunee territory as well. And just as, as you were talking before, Linda, I was thinking about some Haudenosaunee thinking here that would, that would go along with exactly some of the things you're talking about here. Having this long game view, some seventh generation Haudenosaunee thinking here is something that really helps us out on this front. 
Um, right now, I, I work in, I, uh, I actually started out working in logic. Um, the way Westerners look at logic as a tool to fight others, to defeat others, is very, very problematic. And I tend to focus on um, the great peacemaker, the, found, uh, uh, the founder of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, who looked at logic as a tool for creating peace, for creating, uh, 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 for, for creating connections amongst community here. And, and these are things that are just completely and totally left out of this project, and it seems it seems like it can only suffer because of that. It's where feminism came from, right? You know, Sally Wagner's historical work, if there, if there's a reason why the, the Seneca Falls Convention was in Seneca Falls, where there were the seat of the Iroquois Confederacy. So there was an inspiration of, and a sharing of ideas of, from the Iroquois Confederacy to uh, European women. So the history of feminism is not told when it's not inclusive in this way. And um, just picking up on that, um, something that I should also have mentioned, the story we tell, the story to my shame I've told myself in class, sort of looking back, you should have done better than that, Charles Mills. <laughs> the story we tell is that there's this thing, Western political philosophy, and there's the continental branch, there's the Anglo-American branch, and then it goes into a kind of decline, late 19th century. It's, it's doing boring stuff for several decades. Then lo and behold, John Rawls steps in, this Christ figure, he sort of raises political philosophy from the dead. And there again, in it's sort of back in action, ready to do stuff. And he deserves the credit for shifting the focus of Western normative political philosophy or, or Anglo-American Western normative political philosophy to social justice. And if you think about it, and as I say, to my shame, I've only been to think about it systematically recently, so that's an indictment of me. But I can say, hey, I was socialized by these same traditions, so I'll blame them. The absurdity is there's a long tradition of African-American political philosophy, yeah, which yeah. means it's yeah. Anglo-American because these folks, they're citizens of the United States, so that's American. They're speaking English, so that's presumably Anglo. Anglo-American, going back to people like you know, David Walker, even before, coming forward, Frederick Douglass, W.B. Du Bois, Ida Wells, and their central theme is justice. Because, yep. of course, they're looking at, at political process from a non-ideal point of view. They're saying we're oppressed by these structures of you know, race and gender. What do we do about it? So their entire body of work is suffused by the aim of achieving social justice in a non-ideal social system. But our socialization, as I said, this isn't part of confession, there's our socialization is so efficient. That's only reason I've begun to think, you know, this is crazy. Why am I t t telling students this story about Rawls gets to reorient Western political philosophy to social justice when you know, people were doing it in the United States for 100 years before Rawls, David Walker, Frederick Douglass, that's what they're focused on social justice. <clears throat> and if I could just put in, <clears throat> I'm sorry, a brief plug. There's going to be this huge book coming out, University of Chicago Press, late in the year, October, November. Um, Jack Turner and Melvin Rogers, African-American political thought a collective history. So it's going to be this landmark text with like maybe 30 something chapters, each one on a different African-American political thinker. 
So the hope is that with this book, it will sort of settle once and for all, is there such a thing as an African-American political tradition? And anybody who, you know, sort of, you know, says, no, you can hit them with this book because it's going to be, well, seriously, you can argue with them from this book. It's going to be a nice big book. It'll be good, good for hitting people with also, like 800 pages or so. And in a sort of chapter and verse, all these people, primarily Black Americans, with a few folks from the Caribbean as well, like Marcus Garvey and so on. So it should sort of, sort of put definitely laid to rest, laid to sort of grave, the idea that there's not an Anglo-American political tradition focused on social justice long before John Rawls or any of the white guys. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I love Melvin. He is, he's absolutely great. He's absolutely great. Um, so we are going to move on to another question here. Um, so uh, this is coming from someone um, like me, others like me that are just coming out of grad school, starting, starting that walk into being a junior scholar. Um, and from my experience and experience of other junior scholars around me, many senior scholars are not speaking out about these types of systematic issues in philosophy. Um, but we see a slew of grad students and junior scholars doing this. Um, the grad students that run MAP, um, I was at APA Pacific in 2019 at the diversity summit there, and the grad students took over that also. Um, these grad students and junior scholars are oftentimes uh, putting their careers on the line um, by speaking out. Um, even someone like me right now, um, you know, I'm an early modernist. Um, I am Facebook friends with many of people uh, that are um, that are on the uh, on this Canada grant. Um, I am I've been at conferences. I've given papers alongside them, <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, Dwight, what I would guess is that there's so many black people in philosophy, especially up in Canada, that they probably did not remember you. That has to be the explanation. <laughs> that, that, that is that's spot on, spot on. <laughs> but um, but um, with this, um, how then do we get senior scholars to back us, right? Um, to back grad students and junior scholars um, from uh, being, you know, it's, is, we all understand that philosophy is a, is particularly um, focused on, you move forward from connections, relationships, right? Um, and so if you start breaking relationships, you begin to endanger your career. Um, and so that's one thing, even in this, I'm trying not to endanger uh, my career, um, because a lot of people that are connected to this grant um, are people that I have spent a lot of time with. Um, so how then um, do we get senior scholars to back junior scholars um, and so that they won't be blackballed? Um, and why does it feel like senior scholars are not willing to help at times, um, oftentimes? So how do we get them to back these junior scholars? And then why does it feel, at least oftentimes on my end, it feels like I'm like, um, I'm putting myself in danger often of uh, speaking out. Um, and I. Um, yeah, and I'm very early on in my career. It's like, I'm a baby fish and you could just, you know, get rid of me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me say something to this. I think um, 
you know, the senior scholars in some fields like early modern, like history of philosophy, certain fields are, are not, you know, I mean, you want to be able to maintain as good relations as you can with uh, scholars in your subfield. So you want to, you know, try to, it's like working within any institution. It's hard to work in our institutions that are all compromised and, you know, um, morally compromised, right? So you, some, and some institutions you leave, I've left some, you know, but, but you try to, you have to work with people that you don't have total agreement with. But um, if you, you know, if you do good scholarship and, and your, your historical archival research or whatever it is you have to do in that field, then um, there should be some at, at least that, that, that recognize it. But what's, what happened with uh, my generation and Charles' generation is we began, or some other people, <laughs> began to create journals and conferences and organizations outside the mainstream, like the Caribbean Philosophical Association and the Critical Philosophy of Race Journal and Feminist Philosophy Journals. And, and this, um, this isn't everything you need because uh, there will be some who will discount your presence to give conference papers or publication in these journals. They will just discount this. But it gives you, uh, it get, you know, beyond the fact that it will give you lines on your CV, Gives you an intellectual community that will challenge your work, your work yeah. in productive ways. Like, you know, as soon as you go to the APA and you get challenged in unproductive ways, shall we say, <laughs> right? Yeah. But you want an intellectual community that knows enough about the literature you're talking about and what your project is, that they can, they can actually challenge you in good ways and help you improve work. So the point of creating these alternative sites was also to improve the intellectual quality of our work by creating venues in which we could engage in a serious and critical way with people who knew something <laughs> relevant to what we were doing. So I, I think, um, but the other thing I would just, I wanted to say is that there, sometimes deans are better than philosophy faculty and you're, projects, your, your CVs are also going to be looked at by um, non-philosophy people. Thank God, in some cases. <laughs> they, uh, they have a wider frame of reference. Other dis most other disciplines are ahead of us in thinking about diversifying the canon and uh, diversifying the problematics of, of the discipline. We are behind the humanities and behind the social sciences. So when you have interdisciplinary tenure review committees and when deans look at your CV, you're actually sometimes better off than you are when it's just philosophers. Um, but also, I'd say that there has been a, a movement within the academy for at least a quarter of a century. I've been involved and other people have been involved in to change the tenure requirements to recognize the work we do in uh, newspapers and magazines and speaking to community groups and working with community groups and to have that 
so you have a scholarship teaching and service and then we created a fourth category at Syracuse University where I used to teach of, of community engagement so I don't have uh, her boy Boyd has worked on this um, but some other people I, I'm forgetting the names but I can put it on my Facebook page um, to rewrite and, and several institutions have been on board with this because obviously it should be something that it, it used to be it would just fall off the map you would do all this community engagement and it would just fall off the map when you wrote <laughs> your tenure file but today there's a movement afoot to change that to recognize and I think the key is to recognize it as intellectual work it's not simply bringing the knowledge from the ivory tower to the hoi polloi. It's also getting another kind of critical engagement that can also improve the quality of your intellectual work from a wider set of publics who know some other things. They may not know the academic um, canon, but they know some other things that are relevant to your project. So. Um, that's the argument that 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 we've made is that this is intellectual work it's also can be seen as service work and that's that should be important but it's also intellectual work so th this is what people need to 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 feel confident that they can make these arguments in their tenure case and clarify what they've been doing and call it intellectual work and you know demand assert that this be part of how you are judged at tenure time. I have one quick question. So, um, and I'm gonna go back to the family analogy um, because when we're, so I guess now I'm like, we're trying, because in the past, like you were saying, um, you made particular journals, conferences um, to work within, um, but we wanna take over the family, right? We don't want to be stepchildren anymore, and so it's like, how do like, how right. do I take over this taking family? over might not be the best verb. <laughs> under this you know, Joining as equals, how about that for a nice yes. harmonious? I mean, thing, this, I think. That's, that sounds ecumenical. Like but you know what I'm saying? How do I make this move? This this movement where this is like I'm no longer like a, a stepchild that has my own toys to play with, but that I can like have the family's toys to also play with. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's like... People get invited. I'm sure, uh, um, you know, all of us here have done institutional work and uh, it's a pain, it's time consuming. Sometimes there's a lot of aggravation involved, but I generally say yes. Uh, I know Charles says yes um, to almost every, like, APA committee or, our journal review uh, editorial board and yes to this too which we really appreciate <laughs> it's hard to be in those rooms where you're the only one it, believe me I've walked out uh, mm. twice. but it one voice can make a difference uh, it can turn the tide so I think um, you know there there's a takeover there's, but we also we, it's also good to create the alternative institutions in which we can build from the ground up in a different way. I agree. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. I do. I do.
So Shelly, uh, you're coming at this from a different standpoint here from, from an, un, an unemployed philosopher. Uh, do, do you have thoughts from, from your standpoint on these issues here? I guess part of what I'm thinking about here is, is how, much, how much can be done from within the institution of philosophy, how much uh, needs to be done uh, from outside of the institution? Okay, I, I, well, I, I have to say that um, I, you know, I've been listening to what Charles and Linda have been saying, and I, I agree with a lot of it, uh, but quite a bit of it, I think, is um, particular more, it's almost specific to uh, the American context, because I don't think that, um, and Charles, I, I mean, you, you've experienced Canadian philosophy from the inside, so you, you might um, concur with this. I don't think that in Canadian philosophy, um, many of the institutional, I, I don't think that the scaffolding is in place that um, would enable the changes that um, we would like to see. Um, and I think that, um, I, I, I also think that has to do with um, the relation of the relation between Canadian philosophers and American philosophers and the relation between Canadian philosophers and the APA, because an increasing number of philosophers who could bring about change, who could bring change in Canadian philosophy are taking up leadership positions in the APA. And I really question whether they're, whether as leaders in the APA, they're going to be looking out for the interests of Canadian philosophers. Um, that's something that I, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, and um, so what you have is basically a um, Canadian philosophical association that itself uh, you know, it's increasingly um, increasingly powerless, increasingly um, you know uh, disjointed, and you know always on the brink of not existing. Um, uh, and the APA is um, you know um, giving more and more leadership positions to Canadian philosophers that I'm not sure that I'm not at all confident that our interests are going to be addressed by the APA, our specific interests. Like, I don't, I like, I don't know how interested the APA would be in taking up, you know, taking up the problems with the shirt grant. And yet, you know, a number of the, the funding came from the federal government in Canada, but a number of the PIs are members of the APA, including Lisa, Lisa Shapiro, um, who, you know, sort of coordinated the whole thing. So, I mean, that's just, that's just one to give one example of how uh, I'm not quite sure that, um, I, I, I don't know that a lot of what's being said about the possibility for change, I'm not sure that applies to Canadian philosophy much at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, I think that um, 
individual philosophers can, um, of course, can change. They can, you know, they can change their syllabi. They can change, you know, the, the, the focus of the research. They can change the perspectives that they um, start to, um, to teach and write about. But in terms of uh, Canadian philosophy itself, I, I, I'm, I'm not confident. And I'm, uh, the reason I'm not confident is because I've had such a hard time getting a job and because the, I mean, the departments are so exclusionary. I mean, it's really, really like, you know, um, I mean, uh, as I said in my initial post at Daily New, um, more than 30% of full-time faculty are non-disabled white women. Think about that. I, I think it's probably closer to 40%. And so, I mean, non-disabled white women don't make up 40% of the, the Canadian population. There's no, there's not, you know, not even close. And yet, so that, so the lack of representation, and I don't see that, I don't see that changing anytime soon um, because it hasn't changed in 15 years. In fact, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, there's been more gender parity for, non-disabled white women, but for no one else has, has there been any kind of parity. And, um, you know, I, I've tried, uh, tried from within the CPA itself. I've been on, you know, I was on the equity committee at one point. And so I, I don't have the kind of optimism that um, some of the rest of you have. Hmm. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got. I got all. I got all. Maybe I have too much optimism. Uh, uh, no, but, that's good. But yeah. it, I, I'm not sure it applies to the um, the geographical context where I'm located. I just know. So um, you know, uh, black people have been really patient in America for a really long time, and it's actually you know there's our hope in that change is actually produced change, right? If we never had hope, um, I wouldn't be here, right? Uh, and so I've got to hold on to something um, or let it, uh, or die with it, you know? Um, but, so just some closing thoughts while we, while we wrap this up. So two of the things that really grabbed my mind here um, in, in relationship to all of this was when Charles, of course, you were talking about um, philosophy being a particular white family um, and, um, and Linda and Shelley, um, when we talk about the amount of diverse food that we're actually digesting as philosophers. Um, and so just, I wanna throw it out there just to give you any type of closing thoughts that you have on that or on anything you could just bring up or you can pass, um, just any closing thoughts. Well, what, what does, um give me hope is is the younger generation uh, i don't know the canadian scene as well and i do know that sometimes the younger generation is <laughs> worrisome because they've come through these institutions that have trained them in in such exclusionary ways so it's, it's very dismaying i've certainly seen my share of young assistant professors who are completely uneducated in any of the fields of philosophy that we represent. And I think, why, how did these people get here? But there are amazing, you know, there, there's people doing amazing work 
who are untenured right now, like Stephanie Rivetta, yeah. but who's, who's doing work, doing archival research to uncover feminist theorists in Puerto Rico that have not been read. Um, Chike, who's doing work. I mean, there, there's, that, that actually gives me a lot of hope because it takes time for this work to get um, solidified as part and, and into the canon. But they're, they're, they're doing new work, uh, original work, and, um, and some of them are getting jobs and are getting tenure. Yeah. So I, I think, um, I, I feel hopeful, you know, because sometimes you just have to wait for people to die off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta wait. tells us, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I think that there's things that our generation did, but I think this new younger generation, like I waited till tenure, I, ch I made some changes in what I was working on at tenure time. And, you know, I had two kids to support and, you know, I had to make strategic decisions like, like you know, like everybody else. But I'm seeing these younger people like do this stuff before tenure. And it's serious philosophical work. I think they're going to be good. And they're at in departments with graduate students, you know, like Stephanie uh, and Chike. So that's what gives me hope is uh, your generation, y'all's generation. <laughs> Shelley, Charles, you have anything? Well, I'm just worried about... Um an already terrible pre-COVID job market and what a post-COVID job market is going to be so yeah. that um, it's easy for me to, and I, I have 10, I got it some time ago, easy for me to be sort of, you know, staking out pseudo-radical or maybe even, even genuinely radical positions. But I mean, what about folks who have to worry about you know, being able to pay the rent, pay the mortgage, pay the kids' education, in a, in a situation where the jobs are really going to be, it's going to be even tighter than it was before. And any kind of rational interest-based calculation would really point in the direction of playing it safe. So um, I guess I'm not that optimistic. I mean, what Linda says is correct. You know, it's amazing what people have already been doing. I wonder if they'll be able to sort of keep on doing it or if others will come on to join them in the job market we're going to be getting for the next few years. So that's a concern that I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're going to need teachers and the teachers need to teach courses that fill. And the generation of students is also interested in great. Okay, that's a positive. Uh, yes, yeah. I guess that's true. I think we, we will get pushed from outside, the profession will get pushed from outside in terms of, of students taking what kinds of courses. Um, and I think also we have to do street action, right? We have, I mean, that's the way black studies and Latin American studies and women's studies came into existence and disability studies as well is through activism, uh, student protest, student sit-in, student lock-ins. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff now on third world studies and how it actually came into existence and then how it got recuperated into ethnic studies and, and, and demobilized in certain respects. 
but we you know we have to continue to make these revolutions every generation you you can't stop it's permanent so i think um there's there's got to be mobilizing from outside and there is now that's part of the black lives matter agenda is a curricula agenda um to uh force institutions of education to um think about what they're teaching and what they're not teaching and so I, I think there, there's, there's mobilizing going on. It, whether it's how successful it's going to be, I don't know. But even without tenure, I think there are, there are reasons to think that if you're teaching, um, you will be able to expand your curricula because that's what the students will want. And so, um, you know, there, there, and, and in, some, in some institutions like the California system, non-tenure track faculty have expansive health benefits um, livable wages and job security so we may lose tenure but that doesn't mean that we will lose um, job security health benefits etc if we organize if we organize into unions and that's what's happening in the united states i'm not so so clear about canada um, to to protect uh, the ability to do good intellectual work um, and to have livable wages for the work that we do. Yeah. Also, I want to I want to say too that we all we need the senior scholars in the room also to be fighting to keep those junior scholars that are living on the edge, um, the ones that are actually trying to push a little bit. Um, we need the people that are in the room to say, hey, hey, we we need this person. Um, and not just for our department, because uh, no, no one that's working on critical theory is just doing things for their department. They're doing things for everyone. <laughs> you're, you're reviewing articles for this journal. You're, you're showing up at this school. Um, you're doing a little bit too much, actually. Um, but, um, and that's why we need these senior. I keep, I'm, keep, I'm going to keep calling on senior scholars. I keep bringing it up uh, because these are the, it's like, yeah, I think this is where um, the young scholars need a tether. Um, and I think you can get lost in the process of like having to pay your rent, of having to pay stuff. And it's like, I will say over the last couple of years, I've, I've felt that way. Um, and then now that I'm in my like 30s, I'm like trying to like, you know, make sure that I'm going to be all right. Um, and it's safer for me to write about um, Descartes. It's safer for me to write about Leibniz. Um, and I know then that I would end up getting tenure. Um, but if I write something on the edge, the people that are going to at least give me that tether and hold me here are senior scholars um, that are willing to speak out in, um, in faculty meetings, you know? Um, um, yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, my two cents. Point taken, point taken. <laughs> my two cents. Shelly, did you have last thoughts on this? Um, well, actually, I wanted to um, get um, some views uh, from all of you uh, with uh, regard to one of the questions that you suggested you might ask, and that is, uh, you know, what can be done to change this? Didn't, isn't that one, one of the questions that you asked? You, I guess you were referring specifically to the project and the grant, yeah, what yeah. can be done? Um, you know, to 
um, sort of resist this or, um, you know, um, you know, bring about some kind of change to the project or, you know, motivate, um, motivate the PIs to, to change the project themselves in some way, or is that, that was one of the questions that you suggested, right? So I, I'd be interested in hearing some views uh, uh, about what could be possibly done. Well, I wouldn't want to go into detail, but um, as a result of the daily news exchange, people in the project have reached out to certain individuals. Oh, I that's good. Yes, yeah, so I guess I just want to sort of leave it there rather than sort of specifying. So I think, I think we're, still waiting. <clears throat> we're still waiting to see what comes of it, but there has been some response to the actual exchange. Yeah, so agitation can sometimes have an effect of shaming, especially when it's done in the public eye, which yeah, yeah. Was, was so when it's got some kind of uh, uh, you know puts people in a fishbowl that's a good thing because sometimes they they wouldn't do it otherwise that forces them to to do something further whether they you know how significant uh, their actions are will depend on continued pressure uh, continued work but um we'll see yeah and they definitely have i um i even they have a postdoc uh for the grant and actually someone emailed me to apply for the postdoc um but i i um i've uh, i've already deferred too long and so i have to start my job um there yeah you know how that is <laughs> um but yeah so they are definitely reaching out they really are um, and I'm, I actually am, um, I'm proud, at least to some extent, of how they're responding to this. It seems to be that they are really being proactive um, to some extent, which I am like, at least, at least if you do do this, uh, this does happen, be proactive in, fix, in fixing it, right? At least be proactive in fixing it. But we really appreciate you all being here. Thank you so much. This is actually- Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. I really did. Very much. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, Thank, yeah. You. Thank you. Thank you. Right, so you young, radical, um, courageous guy. You um, more power to you. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I appreciate it, Charles. I really am trying. All right. Thank you all. Have a nice day. Take care, Matt. Shelley. Uh, Linda. Bye.